Welcome to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. Today on the podcast, we're talking about Dr. Frank Baxter, also known as Dr. Research, the star of the Bell Science series that aired in the 1950s and 60s. Many people born after 1980 may not remember Dr. Baxter, but he set the stage for many science television series that came after. He was the predecessor to people like Carl Sagan, Mr. Wizard, Bill Nye. Today, I'm talking with author and historian Eric Niederost about Dr. Baxter and the legacy of the Bell Science films. That's today on the Physics Central Podcast. In 1956, at 10 p.m. on a Monday evening, the Bell Science Series debuted on CBS. This night would end up making history for fans of science television. The Bell Science Series was the first science television show to be fun and entertaining. It showed its audience that science wasn't just boring and dry, but something to be passionate and excited about. It set the stage for many beloved television shows to come, like Carl Sagan's Cosmos and the 2013 reboot of Cosmos, the BBC series Connections starring James Burke, Mr. Wizard's World, 321 Contact, Bill Nye the Science Guy, Beekman's World. The list goes on and on, but it all started with the Bell Science series. The first episode of the series was called Our Mr. Sun, and it explored the science of our nearest star. The show features two characters, the fiction writer, played by actor Eddie Albert, and Dr. Research, played by Frank C. Baxter. The fiction writer introduces elements of fantasy to the episode. Specifically, he introduces two cartoon characters, Father Time and Mr. Sun. Mr. Sun isn't too happy with Dr. Research because he thinks science is taking away from the worship that humans used to bestow on him. Here's Dr. Research addressing Father Time and getting a response from Mr. Sun. Father Time, my name's Research. Uh, howdy, Dr. Research. <laughs> I'd like to hear what you have to say about Golden Boy here. Well, it's a delightful experience talking directly to you and to Mr. Sun, especially for a scientist. I was just going to relate a few facts about Mr. Sun. Facts? If you're going to tell my story, don't give the people equations and figures. Give them the real low down. Tell them what I mean to them. They've forgotten that. When they eat corn or bread or grapes or meat, they're eating sunlight. Their houses, furniture, cars, their nylons. Yes, even their moonshine is sunshine. Tell them if it wasn't for me, they'd have no eyes. Because there'd be nothing to see. The ever-savvy Dr. Research manages to calm Mr. Sun down. Uh, Mr. Sun is almost right. Almost? Yes. Mr. Sun, your logic is a little on the romantic side, too. Uh, you say that you don't like facts, and yet you've just given us quite a list of them. Oh, this may turn out to be fun. No, Mr. Sun, we haven't got all the answers. Science has just opened the book. Yet, in seeking for more knowledge, we too, in a way, are reaching for the great light beyond. The Bell Science series only aired a total of nine episodes between 1956 and 1964. And yet, these nine episodes ended up making a lasting impression on an entire generation of people. And Dr. Research Baxter became a name that symbolized 
how science could be entertaining. You could call him the Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson of his time. This is Eric Niederost. He's a historian. He teaches history at Chabot College in the Bay Area, California. He is also the author of the book Sonnets and Sunspots, Dr. Research Baxter and the Bell Science Films. But the difference between those two men and Dr. Baxter was, ironically, he was a professor of English literature at the University of Southern California. And so that meant what made him a little different. Yes, Dr. Baxter, a man who deeply influenced the public perception of science for a generation of Americans, actually had a Ph.D. in English literature. He was also a television celebrity before he started doing the Bell Science series. Frank C. Baxter started teaching Shakespeare at the University of Southern California in 1930. And he became so charismatic. Within a few years, his classes were overflowing. He actually was in Life magazine way before his television and, and film fame. He had yearly readings of literature. Every Christmas he had these readings, and they were packed to overflowing. And I mentioned in my book that at one, one reading in the early 1950s, there was a, a heavy, heavy rainstorm, and the auditorium was packed to overflowing, but there was an overflow crowd of about a couple of hundred people outside listening to loudspeakers, even in the rain. And so they just put up their umbrellas and they're listening to, to Baxter. That's how charismatic he was. In 1953, Baxter was given an offer to do a televised lecture on Shakespeare. This was one of the earliest forays into what is now public broadcast television. The first broadcast of Shakespeare on TV drew in more than 400,000 viewers. The series only grew in popularity from then on. Shakespeare on TV ended up winning Baxter seven Los Angeles area Emmy Awards. I remember one show he did a thing on, on Egyptian hieroglyphics, and he, he actually demonstrated, you know, actually with the fiber, how to make papyrus. And I remember as, as a kid, I must have been 10 or 12 years old, as soon as I saw the show, I ran out to the garden and I took out some flax, the best we could do, and I made Egyptian papyrus, ancient Egyptian papyrus, in imitation of what Dr. Baxter was doing. Dr. Baxter's educational shows were so popular that he became a national celebrity. There were times where he was mobbed on the street by people who recognized him. He was asked to make appearances as himself on variety shows and sitcoms. Here's a clip of him on The George and Gracie Show, starring the iconic comedy couple George Burns and Gracie Allen. In this scene, Gracie asks Dr. Baxter what his favorite Shakespeare play is. Oh, no, my favorite's King Lear. Why? Well, because every time you read it, you find something new in it. I've been reading it off and on for 40 years. Oh, well, if you haven't finished it by now, somebody must be moving your bookmark. <laughs> Dr. Baxter had agreed to host a few other educational television shows, and he was usually the biggest draw about them. But despite the popularity of Dr. Baxter, not all educational television was doing well. In fact, networks had no reason to believe that educational television shows would draw in a significant number of viewers and certainly not make money through advertising. Now, despite this, in 1953, the head of AT&T, Cleo T. Craig, decided to have the company's subsidiary, Bell Telephone, produce a series of science shows. 
There were multiple motivations for doing so, but one of them was probably that AT&T was having a bit of an image problem. The company had become very nearly a monopoly, and people saw it as somewhat of a self-serving monolith. And it seems Craig thought it would be helpful to show that the company was also interested in giving something back to the public. And he also, I think, was something of a visionary. He really did sincerely want to, it wasn't just corporate image. He, I think he really did want to uh, change, uh, you know, educate the public on the, even at that time, 60 years ago, the rapidly uh, changing technology and science that we had, the advancements of science. Craig's position as head of AT&T meant that he had the power to push his idea through. But there was a fear at the company that the show would fail. At this early point in television history, there had never been a successful science show on air. That was probably because all previous science shows were extremely dry and boring. They usually just involved a scientist, without any special gift for teaching or communicating, giving a lecture in a classroom, and that was it. AT&T was still very afraid that, you know, it would fail. So they did many, many, many test viewings in various places to, to gauge the audience reaction. Because despite Craig, you know, they, they were really afraid because, again, science was, they thought, they hoped not, but they was going to be the kiss of death. In other words, you know, dry, pedantic, you know, the whole bit. And so they were really, really sweating it out, in a manner of speaking. Not only was the show not a flop, it was a huge hit. 24 million people tuned in. That was a 32% audience share. The Bell Science films were like nothing that had ever been done with science television. They were entertaining and engaging. They used a story and a plot to convey information to the audience. And they packed in a lot of good science. The films are certainly a bit dated now, but the basic science in them is still accurate. There are a few exceptions, and there are places where scientists in 1953 didn't yet know the answers to certain questions, but for the most part, the show holds up. In Our Mr. Sun, Dr. Research talks about the first silicon solar cells, which had only just been invented. In the third episode, called The Unchained Goddess, which was about weather, Dr. Research discusses climate change, which scientists did know about in 1953, but which had not yet become such a hot-button political issue. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. Due to our release through factories and automobiles every year of more than 6 billion tons of carbon dioxide, which helps air absorb heat from the sun, our atmosphere seems to be getting warmer. This is bad? Well, it's been calculated a few degrees rise in the Earth's temperature would melt the polar ice caps. And if this happens, an inland sea would fill a good portion of the Mississippi Valley. Tourists in glass-bottomed boats would be viewing the drowned towers of Miami through 150 feet of tropical water. One thing that modern viewers may find odd watching the series today is that there is a distinctly spiritual or religious aspect to them. Just remember, somebody must love you very much. That planet you live on is not like all the rest. You're blessed with just the right size, the right temperature, the right atmosphere 
the right composition. Everything just right to produce the biggest miracle of all. This religious aspect came from the film's director, Frank Capra. At the time he directed the Bell Science series, Capra had already won an Academy Award for Best Director of the film, It Happened One Night. But modern audiences will probably know him best as the director of the Christmas perennial, It's a Wonderful Life. Capra held the view that science and religion were intimately linked. Many of the science advisors on the show fought Capra on this aspect. In fact, the scientist Donald Menzel, who wrote the book Our Sun, which was the inspiration for the first episode, quit over this disagreement with Capra. But in the end, these were just science advisors. Capra was the sole writer of the episode, and much of his religious emphasis stayed. Frank Capra wrote and directed the first four episodes in the Bell Science series. The last five were handed over to Warner Brothers and Walt Disney. After that, production of the series became too expensive to continue. Despite the series' success, Nitero speculates that Bell may not have understood what a treasure they had produced. Because the Bell Science series actually grew in popularity after it went off the air. Bell gave out free copies of it to thousands of classrooms in the U.S. And that's how many, many students who went to school in the 1960s and 70s know these films and know Dr. Research Baxter. And even though Dr. Baxter was a celebrity in his own day... It's argued that the Bell science films made him somewhat immortal in television history. The success of the Bell science series paved the way for other science television shows that came later, like Cosmos, Mr. Wizard, Bill Nye, and dozens of others. The Bell science series showed that science is not dry and boring and without a story. It showed that with creativity and humor, science can be entertainment. The first four episodes of the Bell Science Series are free to watch online. We've linked to them on our blog, physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com. Thank you again to Eric Nideros for being on the podcast. You've been listening to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more of the Physics Central Podcast.